Creative Babble. Today's episode is going to be a little different. Ever since I started making this podcast, I've been getting listener-submitted stories. And today, I want to share some of those stories with you. Remember, if you've ever been bamboozled or swindled or lied to, send me an email or voicemail. Who knows, your story might make it on the show. All right, well, let's get this thing started. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. It's uh, Paul and Paul here. So you brought your dad with you? Yeah, I got my old man right here. Paul Sr. I hopped on a Zoom call with Paul Sr. and Paul Jr. Paul Schiffbauer Jr. is a longtime listener of the show, and he sent me a message on Twitter with an interesting tale. Apparently, growing up, he didn't know anything about the family business. Did you always know this story? I didn't know. Up until like my teens. Like if I asked my kids right now what I do for a living, they probably would have no idea. What did you think your dad did for a living? I mean, kind of growing up, I know he worked at the bar all the time. It wasn't like a normal childhood. It's just like dad worked 60, 70, 80 hours a week, really odd hours. My father owned a bar majority of my lifetime. And it was always kind of like in hindsight, kind of funny. Like I remember like going to work with you. You'd be like, don't talk about this on the phone. Like to my dad, talk to my mother, like not, like real innocently. And if my wife would call me and ask me certain things, I'd hang up on her saying, I'd, 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 I'd hang the phone up. Because of the wiretaps, I wouldn't talk money on the phone. I wouldn't, you know, none of that. One night I got a phone call, like three in the morning, and I, my wife's pregnant with him. So I grab my 38 and I grab my briefcase and I'm leaving. I tell my wife, don't talk to anybody if anybody shows up. <laughs> it was a different life. I was a different person. My father wasn't Tony Soprano. But he kind of had like those mannerisms, you know, where like how Tony Soprano interacts with his kids. I'm not saying he was, but like he came from that, that kind of life. But it's just, he's still my dad. So what exactly was Paul Sr. up to? Well, I'll let him tell you the story. Say you work in a bar, you're a bartender, your boss wants to sell his bar. And you're like, man, I can run this place better. So I don't have any money. So they go, they come see us. Say, hey, you know, my boss is selling this bar for X amount. We go over, check the place out. And say the guy that wants 50, 50 grand down, so we would give him 50,000 cash. So what's the catch? And where we made all the money was the fast pieces. There were these poker machines. We put these machines in these bars. Oh, so that's the catch. Paul Senior would give these new bar owners cash to take over the business, as long as they displayed these poker machines. It sounds like a pretty good trade-off. They're legal to own an operator under the guise of amusement only. And all these machines they have up top Amusement only, so... But these poker machines were not for amusement only. 
this is a legitimate business, all right? You're setting up these entertainment video games that are poker machines. Yeah, it's legitimate yeah, because they're legal to own and operate as long as they're not used for gambling. So you legally, know? they're just video games. But unofficially, they were used for illegal gambling. So, of course, the bar is going to pay off people gambling on these machines. So when they get popped by the police, we go, we, we, don't, know, we don't know they're gambling on these machines. But of course, these poker machines were used for more than just amusement. People would actually bet real money on these games. We had spots where we were making 10000 a week. Paul Sr. says that everybody knew these illegal bets were going on, but nobody did anything about it. Well, unless they wanted a kickback. But once in a while, these politicians would say, we're going to outlaw these things outright. No more amusement only. We're making them illegal. We know you're gambling on them. And all of them were like, what's it going to cost? You know, one time it was fifty grand. One time was a hundred grand, and they're using that money to spread around to get these guys to vote the way we want them to vote. But it always costs something. So, in order to keep this business going, you had to keep the politicians at bay. They would call it political donations. Call it what you want, but it's you know, it, it was always always cash. So, how did Paul Senior get wrapped up in this illegal racket? I was basically recruited by a family member and a local judge. We'd go to cookouts with my then, my wife we were dating, and they would ask me all these questions. What do you want to do with your life, this and that? And I just got out of the army and I was trying to become a cop. And he goes, I'll pay you 35,000 years to start. I'm like, 35,000 years to start? I'm like, what am I gonna be doing? And then slowly I was, you know, turned out in this business. I, I wasn't the same person I am now. I, I was not, I wouldn't say con, but had to do certain things to keep people in line, so. Paul Sr.'s life and career didn't turn out exactly how he envisioned it. Instead of being a law enforcement officer, he found himself on the other side of the law. He's been tailed by authorities, his books have been audited, and his phones were wiretapped. And he's endured questioning by the feds. So how did this all start? My brother-in-law. He recruited me. He was a former IRS agent who got in trouble when he was auditing people. We got in trouble for, I guess, taking bribes. His name is Robert Heidel. According to the Baltimore Sun, Heidel was convicted on two charges of accepting money from a company and filing false returns on their behalf while he served as an IRS agent. I'm like, I'm trying to get in the police department and it was like an 18 month wait. I was on a waiting list. And he knew I'll pay, he paid me enough money to stay because at the time the police department was like, he started like 21,000, 22,000, this is 1990, 91. And he goes, I'll start you at 35. Paul Sr. says that Ronald Heidel was pulling in forty dollars to $60,000 a week in cash from these video poker machines. But eventually, Paul Sr. wanted out. We had a pretty big falling out because at one point, uh, I mean, I was doing a lot, I was doing a lot of uh, things for him. At one point, I, sa- I said, I'm being tailed. I'm getting followed, you know. He's like, no, oh, you're imagining it. I'm starting playing my exit strategy. And I'm thinking like, 26, 27 years old. I said, I'm too young to go down with with all this. Paul Sr. says that he walked away from his brother-in-law's illegal gambling operation. But he says that Ronald Heidel continued to look for ways to find easy money. In 1999, Heidel opened up a strip club where he funneled in $1.5 million in cash into his personal bank account. He eventually got busted and pleaded guilty to making false statements on his joint tax return. The tax agent turned tax evader ended up serving a year and a half in prison. As for Paul, he never really did get back into law enforcement. Did you ever make it to a uh, police academy? No, I, I bought no, I owned a bar for 23 years pretty successfully and I sold it in 2016. Paul Sr. is a retired bar owner now. 
He wrote a fictional account of his days managing video poker machines. The novel is called Amusement Only. I'll have a link in the show notes. When we come back, a listener shares a story about a con man who destroyed her life. That's after the break. Our next story comes from a listener named Dre. Dre wrote to me about the time she met her Mexican ex-husband, Ricardo. So I called her on Zoom. Tell me about the time you met Ricardo. My friend convinced me to go uh, have some drinks at a, at a dance club. She said she knew this guy and that he had got the VIP room. And But at the time you're thinking, well, she knows this one guy. All these guys must be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Describe Ricardo. Oh, he's very dapper. <laughs> you know, he's very handsome and and had the nice, almost like a movie actor appearance with his hair is all perfect. He liked to dress really nice. He started paying a lot of attention to me and dancing with me. He came across with such a confidence. He's very confident, even though he couldn't speak English. Just enough to get a basic idea across. But there was definitely a physical attraction yeah, at yeah, first. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm trying to get a sense of whether he was more mm-hmm. of a street guy or was he a, a more of a professional looking guy? That's, he looked like a, a professional. He carried himself and, you know, the way he, even with his bad English, but, you know, I could hear him talking in Spanish and he had all the confidence in the world. He gave me a photo Kind of like a big blown up oversized photo of him meeting President Fox and shaking his hand. Vicente Fox, the president, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you think that you were always his target? Do you feel like your relationship was actually I, genuine? I think I am a walking mark. <laughs> I really do sometimes. People like that are really good at spotting a deeply insecure and emotionally needy person. It's like a shark smelling blood in the water. You know what I mean? Well, you know, I mean, some people are just wired to believe. Mm-hmm. And and I'm a very trusting person too, which is yeah interesting because I do this show about people conning people, but I can totally see myself being a victim or a mark mm-hmm. myself. Because yeah, I, I am very trusting. I'm incapable of not answering any direct question that someone asked me. So, so you started dating and it, it progresses. And what was one of the first signs that you saw that maybe something wasn't right with him? <sighs> That's a good question. First sign. He bought a, a computer, a really old computer and a, a laminating thing that you could make cards and, and laminate them and have them look like a card that you would have in, in your wallet. He said his idea was to uh, make money by producing ID cards. He was going to market this too. He included churches, like a, maybe a gym. I mean, that sounds plausible. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It didn't sound like a great business venture in my opinion, but who am I? I I'm not an entrepreneur, so I don't Go for it. Try it out. See if it works. So that happens. Mm-hmm. You don't really think much about it. Talk to me about the the next thing that happened that was really odd. He 
called me one day out of the blue and asked me to meet him there at the place where he was. He didn't say what the place was. He just gave me directions how to get there. So I went and I got to the place and it was a, a really big car dealership and he had to drive quite a ways to get there. Somehow <laughs> I got convinced to buy a new car. What, what exactly did he tell you? Because I mean, you don't know where you're going. You just know that you're going to meet him at some location. You get there and it's a car dealership. Mm -hmm. it, it was obvious where I was after I got there. And I never really like pushed the question of why, why, <laughs> why, why did you make me come here? I don't know what possessed me to be like, okay, yeah, let's buy a car today. Let's me buy a car today. It was exciting. It was fun. It was a brand new convertible Mustang GT, which is the sports version. So it was not difficult at all to twist my arm and convince me to go ahead and get that car. But as you suspect, there's more to this story. It wasn't until they got into the car that he revealed the real plan. He says, now what we're going to do is you have insurance on this car, right? And I said, yeah. And then he says, okay, so now we disappear the car. That's how he said it. Now what we'll do is we'll disappear the car and you file your insurance and you'll get reimbursed the, all the money that this car is worth. What was your reaction to that? I felt sick. I felt just sick to my stomach and I just said, no, that is insane. That's insurance fraud. People get caught for that and go to prison. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and so did you? Did you go along? No. no, I kept the car. It was ridiculous. You purchased this Mustang mm -hmm. and you still have an SUV that your header already oh, yeah. came for, yeah. right? And you, you, his friend drives it back. You're driving the new Mustang. Mm -hmm. He tells you, you know, his plans on committing insurance fraud. And, and you kind of put an end to that. But then what whatever happened to that SUV? Oh, I gave it to him. I just handed the keys to him. He didn't have a car at that particular moment in time. So I was like, well, here, drive this as much as you need, as much as you want. And... He's there at the house and there's no SUV. I said, where is it? And he said, oh, I lent it to a friend. And then one day he pretty much insisted and told me that I needed to sign it over because something bad happened. Like what? Like With the car, he wouldn't say what. He just said that you need to sign it over and you need to backdate it because something bad happened and you don't want to be the owner of this car. But I signed it over anyway because I thought, well, who knows? Who knows? So right there, right there is a classic con artist trick where they put you in a heightened fight or fight syndrome mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. kicks in. And they tell you something bad happened. You need to hand over the title. Mm -hmm. They don't allow time for you to think about it, process exactly. it. Exactly. And normally you would never hand over that title. But because of the situation that he put you in, it's just like when you go to to a timeshare, th these high pressure situations, you gotta sign today, the deal is only good today. You end up making really bad decisions. So you started dating this guy 
and the relationship progresses and then you decide to get married. Mm -hmm. He had moved in and then after he'd been moved in for a while, you know, we started talking about marriage and I was, I felt like I was ready to get married again. His plan was to get married in Mexico in a Spanish colonial mission style church. Went to Mexico together a couple different times and he took me to the, to the place and to this, and it was a beautiful little village with an old, ancient, ancient old church, you know, with stained glass windows. And he said that he would invite all his friends and there would be like a thousand people there and, and it would be a huge celebration. And I was enthralled with that idea. I thought that was going to be wonderful. He even bought me a dress. I was, um, I was talking to this nice lady that was sitting next to me on the plane on my flight to Mexico. He sent me a ticket and flew me down there to meet his mother. And I was on the flight down there uh, describing him to this, to this woman that I was sitting next to. And of course, at the time I was all happy and in love. Like, oh, he's so handsome and this and that. And she's like, oh, you better be careful. These Mexican men, you know, they're very sneaky and they're, they lie and they, <laughs> Sometimes they have multiple families or whatever. And I was like, well, I don't like to hear that. And then uh, I just happened to mention that I was going to go, that the reason I was going was to meet his mom. She's like, oh, oh, you're meeting his mom. Well, that changes everything. So that they, if you're going to meet his mom, then he must be really the real deal. Because it, if he's just playing, like I was saying before, if he was just playing and messing around with you, he wouldn't introduce you to his mom, so. So that was comforting, right? Because that's a good thing. He very, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, meeting the parents, it doesn't seem like he would have this double right, life because right. he's introducing mm -hmm. you to his family. I met his mom, his, of course, his brother. I met his sister. I met his kids. They're a year apart, there's a boy and a girl. And one of them was six and one was seven. Did the big wedding ever happen? No, no, no. You just get married in, in court? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a, just justice of the peace. These signs start appearing, you know, the laminating machine, the car thing was really odd. And, and you just kind of put those to the side. I mean, right. And I guess it's important to point out that this whole time, he like, like put me on a pedestal. And he was always constantly telling me, oh, you're so beautiful. I love you so much. And my beautiful wife. And I needed, I desperately needed that. It was just like filling this bottomless void. Of, I, I really needed that. You mentioned too in your email that he would say from time to time certain things that would it would frighten me, but do you remember what you wrote? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> gosh, yeah, we'd be watching TV and you'd see a scene where somebody's getting executed or killed or whatever. And be like, yeah, I, I've killed people. I've killed people before. It was weird. It was just like every once in a while, he'd be like, like as a conversation filler or something you know, I, I remember one time we were driving somewhere and he's like, you don't know who I am. I'm very important people in Mexico. I'm very, you know, you don't know who I am. 
And then, in, you know, and then he'd be like, I, I, I've killed a man before. And he told me that it was self-defense or whatever, but, but, you know, if you kill someone in self-defense. Was it, was it, was it like, like a ha-ha situation? No, it, it or? really came, it really, it really felt to me like it was like a chest pounding kind of macho expression of this is how much of a man I am to be feared by people. It wasn't, it didn't seem at the time directed at me. Like he did, he wasn't trying to scare me necessarily. It, it didn't come across that way but just at the time. Trying to prove himself. Right. But yeah. in hindsight, it made me think maybe he did tell me that to plant the seed, you know, that if anything ever went bad, that, that I would have that in my head. I, I maybe. Not, not to cross him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That night when he didn't show up, when he didn't come home. Tell me, tell me about that night. I didn't know that he was really like missing because I, I went to bed at normal time. Dre says that it was kind of unusual that he hadn't made it home yet. But she didn't think much of it, so she just went to sleep. So I'm in the bathroom, sitting down, and I hear this knock on the door. Bam, bam, bam. Really loud knock. And I immediately thought it had to be him. I thought it was him. He's forgot his house key, and now he's finally home, and he, he needs me to let him in. Um, that, could, that was the only thing that made sense to me. And it more loud knocking and I'm like geez something you know must have happened maybe he's upset and and you know or something happened and so I quickly as I could got finished got up answered the door and it's all these dudes in black Kevlar (laughs) holding a warrant up in my face and they informed me that they had arrested him and that he'd been caught with a stack of credit cards with, you know, selling them, trying to sell them. They had an undercover agent that pretended that he wanted to buy stolen credit cards. And he had a whole stack of them. Then he got caught. Did you ever at that moment think that, uh-oh, maybe I'm Yeah, absolutely. Trouble? Absolutely. I was like, oh, crap, I'm probably going to get drug into this too. And at the time, I had a good job. I had a career that was promising, um, and I was just thinking, this is the end. This, it's over for me. <laughs> they searched the whole house. They took his computer and printing machine, and they took my computer, my laptop. There were other agents that were that sat me down and really, really asked me like a ton of questions, whatever you want to know. I didn't find out until after they left and they left a business card. I looked at the card and it said secret service. I didn't even know that, that that's who they were. So I can't imagine how terrifying to be, you know, in the middle of it. Yeah. And then they were really, you know, they were pretty aggressively questioning me. I immediately felt like, Oh man, I, I could be implicated in all this. They were asking me for names. They wanted me to give them names of his associates. And I didn't want to give them those people's names because I was like, they're going to find out. I gave them their names. They're going to come and get me. 
Did you end the relationship right then and there? I wish I could say that I did. That would have been much more reasonable, much more understandable, but I didn't. I stayed with him for the whole time. I went with him to court. I don't know who paid for his lawyer, but he got a really good lawyer. I continued to do the loyal, it's like those women that stand by their cheating husbands in press conferences, you know, like the, the politician that got caught cheating or whatever. And they're always like, there with the wife standing next to him. I was not ready to um, to give up. Um, and why, why is that? Is it because it's easier to stay than it is to leave? I guess. And I still really wanted that, that carrot, you know, that had been dangled in front of me. I still thought, I don't know what I thought. I just didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to, I didn't want it to be true. What, what happened uh, when he went to trial? Um, well, eventually they sentenced him to a year, a full 365 days, not one day less. During that time when he was in prison, what were you doing? At first, I just kind of went on with my life. That first week or whatever, I went and saw him in the building where they keep people before they send them off to the actual prison. Dre tells me that this was an uncertain period in her life. Her husband is in jail for at least a year. Her life was in limbo. She didn't know which way to go. But one day, she got an unexpected call. He called me and told me that he needs a ride home, that he's out. Dre tells me that almost exactly a month after his sentencing, Ricardo was out of prison. This didn't make any sense. They lived together for some time, but eventually Dre asked Ricardo to move out. And then not, not long after that, I got a call from law enforcement informing me that he is needed to serve the rest of his sentence. And they need to know where he is. And do I know where he is? And I was like, well, he moved out. So I don't know where he is. And they said, well, we need your help to get him back. Dre was in contact with Ricardo, but only by email. So she sent him a message and asked him to meet her at Starbucks. He drove a motorcycle there. He was all proud that he had this helmet and he was wearing his nice spiffy leather motorcycle jacket. I was completely emotionally, I had no feelings for him anymore at that point. I did not care. So he arrives in his motorcycle at the Starbucks. What's going through your mind? Oh my God, yes. I was terrified every moment leading up to this meeting. They, they came, they grabbed him in the parking lot as soon as we were done visiting and went to leave to go our separate ways. They grabbed him and he looked at me and it's the last thing he ever said to me. He said, you betrayed me, you bitch. Dre has a lot to pack into this meeting. Not only is she setting him up with the authorities, she also has to take advantage of the situation and serve him his divorce papers. So I called the, the guy that was doing the serving and told him about our meeting at Starbucks. I, I guess I forgot to mention <laughs> that the cops were going to be there too, because as soon as I left, the Starbucks, the second I left my phone ring, and it's him, it's the guy. And he's like, oh my God. 
you didn't tell me. <laughs> I was like, oh. What, what happened? How did he serve him? He saw his opportunity when he was getting arrested. He ran up to the police and he ran up to one of them. He's like, hey, I got to serve these papers. And they're like, they shoved the papers in his uh, motorcycle helmet. He said, consider him served. Like, All right. Now you have to pick up the pieces of your life. Mm -hmm. What happened to your life? What was the aftermath of this whole thing? Oh, oh, wow. How I wish it was happily ever after. It was not. I moved out. A whole bunch of people knew that house as where he lived. You know, all of his associates, all of his criminal friends and criminal associates that were helping him build his crime organization they all know where I lived, and now they know that I put him in jail, in prison. I grabbed some stuff, some clothes in a duffel bag, and couch surfed for a while. Dre eventually had to file for foreclosure, and she lost her home. I lost my job. I, I ended up getting fired because I was, I was just so mentally and emotionally undone by all of this. Dre says that her life is finally starting to get back together. She's thinking about switching careers, and she's even met somebody new. So you're with Rich, and you've been with him for a long time, and how's... Yeah, and he's, he's legit. <laughs> he's a network engineer. He's a real person. He has a real job. This is the last episode of the season. I am currently pulling double duty between this show and Criminal Conduct, and I just need a little time to catch my breath. I'm not going to go on vacation. I just need time to catch up on my reporting. There's many, many more stories coming up in the next season. One is about hypnosis. Is it real or is it a bunch of baloney? I interviewed a woman who says that she can enlarge your penis by using hypnosis. As you rub your thumb and finger together in a tiny little circle, you energize the message that is being sent from your brain down into your penis. Thicker, heavier, fuller. You said <laughs> describe how that could work. I'm I'm having a hard time bridging like to hypnosis to growing a penis. <sighs> I know, and I totally agree with you. It To me, it was like, that's really, that really happened? Indeed, men were enlarging their penises enough that it was very noticeable for them. Anyways, there's plenty of new episodes coming your way, but that doesn't mean that you won't hear from me. In fact, the next couple episodes, I'm going to post some of my Patreon bonus episodes and some of the YouTube videos that I've done recently. So stick around, don't go anywhere. It's just a short break and I'll be back stronger, better than ever. <laughs> In the meantime, go around, tell your friends that you love this show. Remember, the more people you tell, the better chance this show has on surviving. <laughs> We're running on fumes. 
And when I say we, I mean me. You know, most of the shows that you listen to, you know, like the NPR shows, This American Life, Radio Lab, 99% Invisible, you know, they have staffs, like literal staffs, like people who work on research, write, edit, produce, find stories, fact check. I do that for the most part solo. So one man band here. So as long as you do your part and tell your friends about this show, we could keep growing and maybe, maybe I could hire some help. <laughs> Dying here. All right, guys. Remember, I'll be back soon in just a few weeks. Take care. Oh, and go get your vaccine shot. Creative Babble.